Hello and welcome to When Movies Were Good and we are a podcast based in Melbourne, Australia hosted by Rachel, myself and one of my great friends, Matt. How are you doing this week? I'm doing great, Rachel. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Things are slowly but surely returning to normal here in Melbourne. I'm not sure how everyone else is doing out there, but uh, hopefully you're managing to keep on keeping on. And every day is kind of a step closer to some sort of sense of normalcy. We are actually now recording together, so hopefully there'll be a bit more flow in what we're doing. It was we had a few audio issues at various stages. Yes, it's a miraculous new era of us recording in the same room. Yeah. <laughs> Beforehand, we were blaming it on uh, internet quality. Yeah. Last week, it was more my uh, not placing the microphone in the right spot. Yes. Uh, so apologies if any of you have felt annoyed by that, but. We look forward to a new era of audio perfection. Yeah, definitely. And and with all podcasts, as we know ourselves, it's always just a continuing journey through getting better as you do it. So we hope you'll bear with us while we continue to learn and improve. But we wanted to welcome you to this week's episode. Um, and we are discussing two films this week, uh, Rope and Compulsion. So these films, the reason we've decided to pair these films up is because both of these films have inspiration, especially compulsion taken from the 1924 uh, murder of Bobby Franks by uh, Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb, which um, shocked all of Chicago's polite society. And uh, the trial that the boys had was often termed as one of the many trials of the century. So we decided to choose these films because of that. The real-life case of Nathan Leopold and Richard Loeb is quite fascinating in itself, and we thought it would be interesting to discuss how these two films uh, approach the subject. Yes, well, uh, first of all, I'm thinking that uh, they should actually be careful how they use the term trial of the century. Like, maybe they should wait 50 <laughs> years into a century yeah. or something, because it seems like they're sitting, always sitting up at the benchmark very high, and then right. before you know it, a, an O.J. Simpson case yeah. or something happens. That's and right. It, uh, it was only 1924, so... Yeah, and, yeah, you had a lot of century to go. You should have waited before yeah. claiming that title. <laughs> That's right. So we'll get straight into discussing the first film on the roster tonight, which is the 1948 film Rope. Again, directed by one of our favourites, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. And it was written by Arthur Lorenz um, and a story by... Actually, based on a story by Hume Cronin, the actor. I didn't actually realise that until I was researching it. And again, the uh, actual screenplay or script itself was based on the 1929 play by Patrick Hamilton. And the music was done by David Butolf and Francis Pulneck. So starring the great James Stewart as Rupert, John Dahl as Brandon, one of the boys, and Farley Granger. So we'll just briefly recap the, the plot for the audience. Brandon and Philip strangle their classmate David to prove that they can commit the perfect murder. After hiding the body in a wooden chest in their apartment, they host a dinner party with various family and friends connected to David. They also invite their former teacher, played by the great James Stewart, and discuss various points relating to murder. Rupert follows his instincts and certain clues and deduces they murdered David. He alerts the police to the apartment and they wait for them to arrive. So, Matt, what are your thoughts on this film? Well, I loved it very much, but I am going to be controversial from the beginning. <laughs> While I am an ardent Hitchcock fan... This time, I actually didn't enjoy the Hitchcock film as much as the other one we reviewed. It was a very uh, well-crafted um, film in many ways in terms of script tightness. Hitchcock did very well with his one-room dramas. Mm -hmm. But the 
for one thing, one of the key technical aspects that he tried to distinguish himself on was the long takes. Yes. And for a film such as this, where it was set in one apartment, uh, I personally think it made it uh, a bit more complex to look at and a bit more um, uh, awkward than it was perhaps intended to be. I think by creating that fluid, trying to create that fluid movement, it would have been not too bad if he'd accepted that he did have to make some conventional cuts now and then, but especially when he did these, because it was not physically possible at the time to have a movie of that length, um, even if all the actors could remember enough of their lines in one shot, um, the reel of film simply wasn't big enough, and so you'd have these uh, strange transitions into a man's back Back, or into a shadow, which are covered up when they had to change a reel over, Yes, and it... In a apartment where it's so obvious that they're doing everything possible, it, I just don't think it created the fluid effect. It isn't like um, when they made the film 1917 only a couple of years ago, and they used that much more effectively, I think, because it was in a fast-moving outdoor sequence. Yes. it didn't. I remember seeing Rope years ago when I was a teenager, and I think I enjoyed it a lot more then. Um, when I was researching this film, I did see that James Stewart felt that it didn't succeed in what it set out to do and I just didn't get enough of a feeling of urgency not to say it actually to me looked I think this would actually work better as a play the way that this like if they took the script of rope and basically put it on the stage and had similar stage directions to what we saw I actually think that would work really really well as a play the whole time I was thinking I'd rather just be in an audience in a theater watching this as a play rather than a movie well, in some aspects, Dial In For Murder was uh, rather like that. It wasn't uh, something attempted to be in one take for that movie, but it did uh, mimic a lot of the theatrical aspects of the set, and you had, it was like a bird's-eye view often at times, looking over the actors moving in that single living room. There's actually another one of Hitchcock's films around this period called The Paradigm Case, which I haven't got to see yet, but there were about two or three films that Hitchcock tried to make with this long continuous shot method and was lifeboat lifeboat was one of them or was that more just because it was contained in the one area uh no um that was a contained in one space but they weren't trying to have the camera rolling in one continuous shot yep Uh, but um there was another a third film that uh, attempted that method as well but uh, Hitchcock did give up on that method after a while he found that it just didn't work um and and it may have partially been the storylines he used for that because i think most of them were indoorsy types and it may have been different for something like to catch a thief but yeah uh i think the um the particular technique perhaps confused the matters too much yeah um i just also think for me where it didn't perhaps do as well as i would have liked I didn't find there was enough there for him to figure out that they'd murdered someone and put him in the flat. Do you know what I mean? Like he saw his hat with the initials that was accidentally given to him. I know they had that discussion about the various reasons why David wasn't at the party. It just all seemed a little bit too neat at the end that he was able to sort of, I mean, if the, the, the actual setting of the play had been done over several days and he'd spent time with them in different degrees, maybe he was still their teacher or something like that. And, you know, slowly but surely these various clues were coming to him and then he had a big confrontation with them at the end and they sort of admitted it. I just felt it all, you know, literally in the last five minutes, he said, oh, yeah, you know, knock on the door again and that was it. And I, I don't know, that didn't work for me. But 
Well, in one aspect, it's because Hitchcock was determined to use this uh, one-shot method, uh, one-camera shot That's method, right. to yeah. maintain the continuity of a single uh, vision, and it, it did work in short bursts. Like, I love the part from the opening where they uh, uh, sort of glide in through the window from the street and going on to the the suffocation. Poor guy getting killed, uh, yeah. Uh, Spoiler alert, but I guess you did know that if you were going to watch the movie. Um, yeah. And then um, if they could have moved into maybe the uh, first um, 20 minutes or 30 minutes on that one psychological uh, uh, one psychological unit, yes, uh, it could it could have worked. But um, it's uh, I, I think I lost my yeah, trailer of thought. Of Sorry, no, that's okay. It didn't. Yeah, I think we're I think we're kind of both in agreement. It's not that the film didn't work. It's more that there were probably different ways of doing it, which would have worked perhaps better for this particular story about these boys and what they did to this guy. Yeah, what you were saying about the sort of rapid conclusion by J- Jimmy Stewart as the detective role, I don't know if um, they were quite ready for the sort of Columbo plot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what happened with the hat, etc., I think was a way of sort of bring it, building tension for the audience. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I, I, I didn't dislike it, it just wasn't quite what I it was many it was probably a good 20 years since I've seen it and it just wasn't the way I remembered it I think I thought there were different things in the script that weren't there so that's maybe a bit of preconditioning that I had so overall your sort of general thoughts yes no you liked it I did like I did like uh, a lot of the dialogue I thought of Farley Granger was um I I liked him better in that role than I did in Stranger him in Strangers on a Train yes yeah I think uh, it's also uh, an example of uh, one of um, his and uh, Hitchcock and Jimmy Stewart's early collaborations where you got to see him in a much more charming and uh, strong role. Yeah, I did read that, I think, I don't know if James Stewart was completely on board with the way he was shooting the film, so I think James Stewart was normally pretty amiable on set, but perhaps here he might have had a few issues just because... Perhaps he wasn't as on board. But I did think John Dahl was very, very good um, and really annoying. Even his counterpart in the other film, I mean, both of them were equally annoying. But that was the sort of persona that these boys had, especially Loeb, I think. I, I think from memory I read that he was a bit more of the ringleader. Yeah. Um, hence the reason perhaps he met the end that he did meet in jail. So I think John Dahl did a good... And Farley Granger, and as we were joking around before we started recording, not that there's anything wrong with that, they were gay both of them in real life so i think they kind of fit into these roles because there were obvious over um you know sexual homosexual overtones in this film uh from leopold and Loeb themselves so that was one of the things where they involved romantically did the other one do what the other one said in relation to the killing because he was completely under his spell you know there's a lot Yes, and like this is a a show about um how people how we as viewers react to a movie, and so neither of us really claim to be film historians, but for that very unusual technique for the time, the long shot, you actually feel though for the pain and hardship all the production crew went into making it come true, and it just didn't have the effect it uh, was designed to have because. Being in a single building, it got so complex. Mm. Um, they had to move entire walls, uh, 
silently and all the cables in it quickly to move the camera from one spot to another. And this was in Technicolor. And yeah. the way Technicolor works is effectively you have three cameras in one because you need to shoot the same uh, footage simultaneously in three yeah. different um, color. And it was um, his first Technicolor film, was it? Yeah, I think I, I think I'm I was not reading. Sh I'm not. Sh I'm not sure, but um, yes, you have that huge, bulky uh, Technicolor camera, and they had to move that giant tank around without making noise. Yeah, so it was innovative, and we have to definitely give the film thumbs up for that. I like the film. I just. Given how I do like true crime stories, I just didn't love it. Didn't love it. Well, that was done much more in the tradition of a classic detective story where crime is treated more like a crossword puzzle yeah. than a dramatic storyline. Okay, then. All right, well, let's move on to our second film on the roster today. So we've got the 1959 Compulsion, uh, directed by Richard Fleischer, written by Richard Murphy, but based on the book by Maya Levin. Maya Levin actually went to the jail and spent some time with Nathan Leopold. He went there wanting to write a script or, a, or his version of the story. Nathan Leopold actually wanted to him to write more of a bio of him and his life and his him being misunderstood. So he Nathan Leopold actually, I believe, put a lawsuit onto to, onto. Um, my 11 just due to that fact alone but that's something that the audience might want to research so that was interesting that he actually got his lawyers involved there from jail um, and then we also had Lionel Newman on the music so we've got Dean Stockwell who I know from the 90s starring in many TV shows it's um, actually interesting he had this whole classic movie career beforehand as Judd we've got Bradford Dillman as Artie and of course the late great Orson Welles as Wilk who was based on the Clarence Darrow character who was the of course the well-known defense attorney that actually uh, represented the boys in the actual trial. So we'll just briefly recap the story for our audience. So Judd and Artie kill a boy on the way home from school to commit, once again, the perfect murder. They attempt to cover their tracks, but when Judd drops his glasses at the scene of the crime, it leads to their arrest. Famed attorney Wilk takes on their case, saving them from a sure hanging. So that's this film. So Matt, what are your thoughts on this film well i'm actually surprised it's not more of a classic that a lot more people know along the lines of other films like double indemnity i think it's a very good film i can't help wonder if it's that because hitchcock used uh, the same storyline and we have such the power of his um brand name that maybe many uh, people and uh, television stations and producers have regarded compulsion as sort of a poorer cousin of rope but honestly i think it's a a very well tightly crafted film it really approaches the the two young killers much better as people it's a uh, kind of is a, a little more um ballsy in that it uh, d does directly uh, confront um some of their um their own delusions uh, about themselves and yeah. uh, and their uh, sexual um uh, um in interests as well yes um I think uh, something uh, that they in both cases they don't uh, seem to account for is that they probably wouldn't feel themselves such ubermensch if they also didn't have the financial um, backing. That's to... right. Yeah, there was definitely the class structure there. So in both of these films, as in relation to the boys themselves, they were you know students at university. They were studying the works of Nietzsche, and Nietzsche wrote about this. Ubermensch or Superman is that what is that what the English translation would probably be this theory that there are certain intellectual people in society who are above the rules of society 
part of it, I don't claim to be an expert on Nietzsche, but essentially he was a very intelligent classicist mm -hmm. who, um, amongst his most famous theories, was that morality was a concept used by the inferior by the inferior members of society many to yeah. hold back the superior few right um personally i think even um though they would have been a lot closer to the time of nietzsche when he developed it i think partially the he was probably also reacting against some of the uh, class iniquities of his time because it seems to make sense that a lot of um church and aristocratic figures of the time would have been using morality as a way of holding back on what would have been regarded now as more basic democratic reforms. Right. But that gets uh, quite complicated. But as far as they interpret, it's simply that they regarded themselves as intelligent superior beings. Mm -hmm. And they were, by all accounts, in real life, very intelligent people. One of them spoke about 15 languages. Yes. But uh, it, it, they don't seem to realize the hypocrisy that... They're trying to commit, at the beginning, all these smaller crimes, and then they try to get a bigger crime because they want to eventually get publicity for it. So even though they say that they're above society's morals, they're trying to get validation for their crime by getting recognition uh, like from the that same society. They're like reality show stars. Yeah, pretty, pretty much. <laughs> it's like, so they're saying they reject their society, but they also want acknowledgement from it from their, for their crime. Yes, so this film was quite different because it followed the pattern of their story from when they were hatching the crime. And then it kind of just jumps forward to when the victim's sort of already found. And then due to a set of circumstances, uh, including Dean Stockwell's character, Judd, his, uh, his glasses get left at the scene of the crime. And that's actually how they were apprehended. Uh, it was Nathan Leopold, I believe, that lost his glasses. And that's how they actually tracked the boys down. So they took that directly from the true crime story itself. And then, of course, uh, Orson Welles, who had the top billing in the film, even though he only appears in like a third of it, yeah. uh, he comes in as the famous defence attorney, Wilk, and basically just tries to prove, I guess, the boys are sort of psychologically disturbed and they shouldn't be hung for that. But uh, sort of he had a few big, uh, very big courtroom scenes in there, which it played right to his strengths as an actor, I think. Yeah, I think he did superbly. And even though it was, I think, a bit of... A false advertisement to put him in the top billing. It should have had and featuring Orson <laughs> Welles or, some, or something like that. He did um, deserve um, a very a great acknowledgement for his role in that. It was far more than a lot of the cameos he just made in other films for cash. Yeah. One thing I will say about uh, uh, Welles' part is that they, even though I think he was meant to be um, representing Darrow in a quite advanced age. They should have made his character a bit younger so they didn't use such horrid makeup. Yeah, I did notice that, actually. I actually was looking at that and I was like, hang on, that's... Oh, that is, like, their version of aged makeup back yeah. then. I mean, they could have got away from it if the camera was a bit further away, perhaps, but they wanted to get all their money's worth with Orson Welles, even though he could <laughs> fill the frame pretty well. Yes, And so could, they went yes. right in on his face and that's uh, not very convincing old makeup. Yes, I did read that he... This was about the time I think A Touch of Evil came out and he wanted to direct this film Compulsion and he wasn't given the go-ahead to direct, just a star in the film and apparently he was a real pain in the butt because of it. How unlike him. But <laughs> I don't know what you yeah. mean. 
look, I enjoy, it's almost sort of like with these two films, I really enjoyed aspects of Rope and I really enjoyed aspects of this film. I actually thought Dean Stockwell was really good in this film. I remember him from some corny roles that he did on TV in the 90s, like that show Quantum Leap that he used to do. And I really had no idea that he had this really sort of varied history as an actor from this era. And he, uh, through my various researches on the film Psycho, he was one of the people that they were looking at to play Norman Bates or that type of an actor before they did end up casting Anthony Perkins. So obviously Hitch was sort of determined to have that sort of young matinee idol looking person for that character. So, I mean, relating back to how well these films, you know, take on the case in terms of compulsion, that seems to have a bit more of a step-by-step going through of what actually happened in the true crime. Whereas Rope really just takes that true crime of Leopold and Loeb and sort of fixes it into a story that's adapted for Hitchcock's technique, I think. Yes, and it does take on a bit more of that uh, crime as a game Columbo type effect where you sort of get taken along by the ride of the two characters attempting to uh, cover up their tracks and uh, you're taken along in almost a sort of false sympathy for them mm. until they get reminded, oh, wait, they're actually doing a pretty bad thing, as Cedric Hardwick, uh, Hardwick yeah. uh, puts in simple terms for them. Yeah. It's less it, It's less about the obscure morality behind uh, their crime, although there is the rant about stupidity and ignorance, but really it is much more of a, a game crime to them. Yeah, it was some of the interesting scenes in Compulsion was when... Uh, Bradford Dillman's character, when he realised that Dean Stockwell's character, they he dropped the glasses and how angry both of them were about this fact that this unforeseen event was going to be their undoing, even arguing about how the glasses could get dropped because they didn't want to admit that either one of them had been responsible for such a stupid thing happening. So that really did give into their mindset, especially as detailed in Compulsion, that they did think that they were better than everybody else. And I think, like you were saying, it definitely came from a class construct as well because they were, you know, wealthy, well-to-do, high-achieving boys. They'd never really seen another part of life, so it was easy to be lulled into that mindset. Yes, the tragedy is that uh, with that combination of intelligence and economic means, they could have gone on to be something really special in the yes. world. But yeah they went down a very different path. Yes, I I did read that both of them, when they were originally sent to jail, they were involved very heavily in running school programs and college courses and high school courses for the inmates. So they did kind of sort of put their uh, talents to good use in there. Uh, The actual boys themselves, Richard Loeb, was killed in 1936 by another prisoner, apparently due to some sort of advances or something had happened in there. Nathan Leopold actually was released in 1958 and then moved to Puerto Rico and became a medical assistant that he was quite good as and he just basically went by the moniker of Nate so no one could kind of trace back his his past but they were such young boys I mean they were sort of 18 19 years old do you think in both of these films they cast the boy I mean they were trying to make out that the two men in compulsion were that age and they just did not come across as that age to me at all they were both sort of well into their 20s well that's the trouble with a lot of younger or 
child actors or young adult actors in that they're often played by people older than the actual role. But I suppose, and I guess it's more, more a different problem now because cameras are a lot better at picking up the subtleties of wrinkles and everything. Mm. But uh, simply being that a the exact age of a historical person doesn't necessarily mean you can uh, act effectively with with the same maturity. Yes. Sometimes yeah. the demands of a of a role exceed what the historical person's age was. Yes, that's in right. terms of um, how an actor can. Uh, can so, do a justice. So it's just maybe in the both of these films, just trying to find the right actors to fit in with the director's vision. So both really good, interesting films from a in, very, very interesting topic. There have been other films uh, made about this case. There was a play that both of us have seen called Never the Sinner that came out in 1988, which I really enjoyed, and a few other films, not to mention numerous documentaries that take some sort of lead from the case. And the whole thing was just really tragic, especially for this poor young boy that was killed, Bobby Franks. He often gets forgotten in all of this. So just to sum up your the, feelings on everything. Well, like you said, the victim often is forgotten. Mm. So for his sake, um, uh, trying to remember that he was a real person. He wasn't just a, a pawn to be shut aside. And at, at least uh, that's one thing that um, compulsion does better mm. for the victim is that it does show him as much more of a fleshed out person and who's actually his age. Yes. Um, uh, as opposed to Rope, where David was older. Where was basically their age, they're all yeah. sort of um, cut out Columbia Harvard uh, uh, students. That's right. <laughs> uh, and so he was just like another one of them. Yeah. Okay. So, well, we did enjoy our. Uh, walk with those films uh, over the last couple of weeks they were sort of very interesting to watch and I was quite interested to see Compulsion I wasn't actually familiar with that film until I was researching Rope so it was good to see that film and to have a go with it but Matt we have our very exciting double for next week we're hoping the audience will enjoy this one we may even make this one a little bit longer because I think there'll be so much to discuss we're having our big Titanic double the big Titanic double with the 1953 uh, Titanic made in Hollywood and then we have uh, the 1957 I believe it is please memory don't fail me now a night to remember based on Walter Lord's book of the same name so are you excited for that one I am. I had a million water and ice puns race for my head, and I've decided that it's probably in best taste to not use any of them. Yes. That also covers the fact that probably none of them were that good anyway. Yes, that's right. No, we're really looking forward to this one. Both Matt and I have long held interest in the Titanic. I'm a fair bit older than Matt, so I've had an interest in the Titanic since I saw Raise the Titanic when it came out when I was a young child. And Matt and I were actually on, you know, our Facebook accounts and I happened to see Matt in one of the Titanic groups. I thought, God, is this a small world or not? And uh, we thought after I saw that and we'd sort of had a bit of a laugh about both being in this Titanic group and we didn't know, we thought we definitely have to choose two of the classic Titanic films. There are, of course, many Titanic films out there. We will try and keep away from the David Cameron one, although I'm sure that one will come up in conversation as a point of comparison. But I'm really excited about this one. Yes, I'm very excited too. Uh, if, uh, like you said, uh, pre-David Cameron, uh, the big thing is that people had really no idea what the wreck was going to um, look like yep. uh, when they, if they ever did find it. Yep. It was a, quite a bit of mystery. Yes. And that in many ways, these are um, the films that sort of brought the Titanic into part of um, 
sort of the mainstream culture. Uh, without, um, before those films, Titanic was a tragic news story. Um, for the sad truth is, is that we probably wouldn't have nearly as many safety regulations on ships and even on aeroplanes that save lives probably by the thousands every day and week without yeah. that uh, tragic incident. But this, uh, these two films really uh, made the Titanic uh, that tragic hero of the last century. Yes, yeah, so we're bit, so that will be on uh, our next episode of When Movies Were Good. But in the meantime, thank you for joining us. I'm Rachel. I'm Matthew. And we're watching good movies. We'll see you on the next one. Thank you.